Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. As we've been reading through the New Testament together this summer, we've been highlighting a man named Paul um, quite a bit, and especially in his relationships with various churches that he wrote to. And within the Bible, Paul seems like one of those mythical figures, a man so great and important to the formation of faith and the church and how we understand God today. In fact, he's a bit like a superhero even in his brilliance and the level of impact that he's had on us. And in some ways, Paul has seemed immortal and even untouchable. And yet today we come to his last letter at least chronologically, with Second Timothy. Um, and if you haven't noticed before, the, Paul's letters in the New Testament are arranged from biggest to smallest because someone in the first few centuries thought that was a great idea and we forgive them. And so even though we read Second Timothy, which is last, we also will read uh, Titus and Philemon, and then also people think he may have written Hebrews. But anyway, what's important is that Second Timothy is us engaging Paul's last words. And while Paul wrote large sections of the New Testament, he wasn't much of a hero in his day, I think. He was hounded by Jews his entire ministry. He was constantly struggling with wayward churches. He had vicious critics and stubborn and delusional expectations of who he was and what he was supposed to be doing. And by the end of the book of Acts, we leave Paul in house arrest in Rome, where he's trying to preach the gospel to all who will hear him after having been imprisoned for several years in Caesarea. But in his last three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, we begin to piece together the final season of Paul's life. Sometime shortly after Acts was written, Paul is released from prison in Rome and continues traveling, visiting churches, and spreading the gospel. And possibly even to Spain or Britain, if tradition is correct. But in 1 Timothy and Titus, he actually shares a bit about this journey. But when Paul writes 2 Timothy, he's back again in prison. And this time it's different, because gone is the hope from letters he wrote previously in prison, like to the Ephesians and Philippians. Because instead, now Paul is looking to the preservation of the gospel and of his message after he's gone. And it seems that in the mid-60s AD, Emperor Nero increased persecution against Christians, and Paul is caught up in that, that time. And so he's again in prison. But this time, though, he's not accorded the honors of being a Roman citizen. He's labeled a criminal of the state. He finds himself in one of the worst empires of the empire, or one of the worst prisons of the empire. And he's desperate even for basic needs. And so with this new status and with this new set of circumstances, all of his companions have abandoned him, except for one man named Onesiphorus, who sought him out. And so, but now Paul's alone, and death is coming. But he has just enough paper and ink for one final letter, and this he writes to a man who has become like his son, whom he has trained in the ways of Jesus for many years now, a man named Timothy. And before we go any further, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for, for Paul and the ways that you have worked through him and spoken through him to us. Um, help us to be ready and able uh, to hear your message to us through Second Timothy. Um, please speak through me uh, and 
guide us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul originally finds Timothy in the town of Lystra, and we can read this in Acts 16. And Timothy is well spoken of by the church there. He grew up with a Christian mother and a Christian grandmother, and they made sure he knew the, the Bible. And in later letters to Timothy, Paul actually mentions that God has specifically commissioned and gifted Timothy to join Paul on his or in his ministry. And throughout other letters, Timothy pops up every so often, such as taking 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians, or even at the end of Hebrews, where he's about to be released from prison himself. But when Paul writes this last letter, Timothy's in Ephesus, and he's been charged with the fun task of setting the church there in order. The stubborn party has risen up in the church who denounce core pieces of the gospel and have brought this weird amalgamation of Jewish tradition and Greek philosophy. And this Paul specifically addresses in his first letter to Timothy. And while it's still going on in his second letter, his attention now is on the preservation of his message after his certain death. And so to get us into our passage, which is going to be 2 Timothy 2, I'm going to read 2 Timothy 1 for us. And it's not very long, but I want you to pick out a couple of the themes that are important to Paul and to help us understand the second chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Fugilis and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Now, there are two things that Paul brings up over and over, and it's these things that are going to drive his message, and especially our passage. The first is that Timothy is to not be ashamed of the gospel. 
for which Paul isn't ashamed and hasn't been ashamed, even though it has led to where he's at. And neither was Onesiphorus ashamed of. The second is to join Paul in suffering for the gospel. And the reason Paul has suffered and, in, and is suffering in prison is clear, because he's a herald, an apostle, and a teacher for the gospel. And again, we find this same thing modeled in Onesiphorus, who searched and cared for Paul, and who might even have been arrested himself because of it. And so it is these two things, suffering for the gospel and not being ashamed of it, that Paul sees as crucial to the followers of Jesus, and to, crucial to whether Jesus is going to be known to the next generation. And so with this in mind, Paul then brings us into our passage today, 2 Timothy 2. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Now, in light of not being ashamed and enduring suffering through the power of God, Paul gives Timothy a couple commands. First, to do this, Paul tells Timothy that he has to be strengthened through the grace that God gives in Jesus. And you probably notice that Paul actually mentioned grace quite a bit in the first chapter, that this grace is the grace that God, or is God's undeserved gift, and it's from his plan and purpose alone. It was found in Jesus even before the beginning of time. It was revealed in the coming of Jesus, and has brought the destruction of death and the gift of life in Jesus. And so for Timothy and all the bearers of the gospel, the power comes from the eternal, undeserved, God-given grace in Jesus and nowhere else, not ourselves. And second, Paul says, that empowered by this grace, Timothy is to entrust this to reliable people who can pass it on to others. And that's what Timothy's already in Ephesus trying to do, and Paul lays this out in more detail in 1 Timothy. Paul's just reaffirming Timothy's purpose there amidst the challenges that he's now facing. But lastly comes our favorite command, right? To join me in suffering. Now, thankfully or unthankfully, Paul impacts this with three metaphors. Now, it's important to note that Paul uses these images to draw out specifically how each of these people suffer, nothing else, right? Not the other connotations that they might carry, good or bad, either in his day or ours. And so that's why we're commanded first to suffer like them. Now, the first image that Paul gives us is that of the soldier. He says, join men suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There's a saying that when a man reaches his mid-30s, he is confronted with a choice, either to really get into World War II history or to get into the smoking of various meats. And thank you, there we go. Jesse, um, so last year, uh, Jesse, a little late, and me, a little early, made our choice and started watching a lot of World War II films and series. Um, and so we hit the modern classics, like Saving Private Ryan, if that's modern now, um, which Jesse, who's Tom Hanks' biggest fan, had somehow missed that. 
Um, and then there was also Band of Brothers and whatnot. And after a month or so, or several months, we worked through our mid-30s crisis and kind of come out the other side with a very general knowledge of World War II and an appreciation for not being soldiers in the 1940s. But one of the things you pick up on through these shows and movies, and even when we talk about soldiers today, is that we usually think of positive traits, like strength, honor, courage, whatnot. But in the first century, especially to Greeks under Roman rule, soldiers were more likely to inspire terror than respect. They were known more for brutality than honor, seen as desperate, violent men in search of wealth. And so Paul's not telling us to be like soldiers in general. Instead, we're supposed to be like soldiers in the way they suffer. Here's how the ancient historian Josephus, who wrote about the Jewish wars against Rome, describes the Roman military. It says this, Each soldier, every day, throws all his energy into his drill, as though he were in action. Hence that perfect ease with which they sustain the shock of battle. No confusion breaks their customary formation, no panic paralyzes, no fatigue exhausts them. All their camp duties are performed with the same discipline, the same regard for security, the procuring of wood, food supplies, and water as required. Each party has its allotted task. Nothing is done without a word of command. The same precision is maintained on the battlefield. Nothing is done unadvisedly or left to chance. And this perfect discipline makes the army an ornament of peacetime and in war wells the whole into a single body. So compact are their ranks, so alert their movements, so quick their ears for orders, their eyes for signals, their hands to act upon them. None are slower than they in succumbing to suffering. Now I think that what Josephus gets at and what Paul's specifically drawing on from the life of a soldier is, is the same. That when Paul talks of suffering, he's actually talking about the single-minded devotion and discipline that a good soldier's life requires. And so Rome's military devastated the ancient world in great part because they were the best trained, the most disciplined, and as Josephus says, they were the slowest to succumb to suffering. And that, Paul says, is what we're supposed to be like. We're to suffer through the, or the discipline and the devotion required of a good soldier so that we might endure the hardships of following Jesus in this broken world. And this suffering isn't about us. Either, as we'll later see, because Paul reminds us that no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but is trying to please his commanding officer. And I think one of the things that intrigues us about the life of a soldier in our culture is that they don't endanger themselves on their own terms. Right? They go because they are commanded. It reminds me of that rather haunting line from Lord Alfred Tennyson's poem about the disastrous charge of the Light Brigade. Ours not to reason why ours, but to do and die. A good soldier obeys even to death because they're devoted to the one leading them. One of the things that's different today than in the first century, too, is that the Roman military tend to be formed around specific individuals. Soldiers fought for their general, who not only enlisted them into his army, but who was also the source of their, their rewards. And so while the Roman government did its best to propagate the idea of serving the glory of Rome... Practically, it was about serving the man who cared for you, fed you, and made you wealthy. And so if a general wanted to make a bid to become emperor and start a civil war and throw the empire into chaos, you joined him because he was your general. Right, the best officers were those who instilled such a loyalty among their men that they'd willingly suffer and die for them. 
And so we are called to suffer as good soldiers of Christ. And the questions we need to ponder then are, are we willing to suffer for him? Am I willing to devote my life and discipline myself in order to endure the suffering he asks of me? Will I follow? The next example of what it means to suffer is the athlete. And fortunately for us, the Olympics are currently going on with all of its many documentaries on our American athletes. But what comes across, no matter what sport an athlete plays, is the intense, almost otherworldly dedication it requires to reach the Olympics. It's not just the amount of time spent on practice, though it is a ton. Right? It's also the ways you eat and rest and the awareness of how things affect you, not just physically, but also mentally. An Olympic athlete is totally devoted to the goal of competition and winning. It controls their entire life, even their relationships. And so continuing on the theme of suffering, Paul specifically points out that you don't win unless you compete according to the rules. And now we've got a few options as to how to read this, but I think both of them are going to apply. In the 1904 Olympic marathon, the winner was a man named Fred Lors, or the one who crossed first. After running nine miles, he decides to stop because running a marathon in intense heat is just not a great idea. And his manager drives up behind him and is yelling at him to get back going, but instead he's, uh, he's persuaded to give Fred a lift in the car. Um, but after 11 miles, the car breaks down, and so Fred decides, hey, what the heck, and decides to run the rest of the race, and he, he crosses first. However, he wasn't exactly subtle about getting into the car, and so some spectators arrive and inform the officials that Fred actually rode rather than ran a good portion of the race. And Fred tries to pass it off as a joke, but he unjokingly gets disqualified and then banned for life. But it gets even more interesting because the second man to cross is named Thomas Hicks. And he gets to the finish line, he collapses, and then about dies. And come to find out, while he didn't cheat by driving, he was regularly shooting up with rat poison during the race to get small bursts of energy, which is not recommended. And then he would follow these injections with a large glass of brandy, which is why he about died at the end. And apparently this wasn't illegal at the time in 1904 or whatever, and so he was actually given the gold medal, but it might be because the officials were just done with this whole thing. And uh, the next day, Thomas Hicks promptly retires from running, and that's probably a good move. Now, the point of these stories is this, that the way you win a marathon is just as important as crossing the finish line. Right? But to compete legally, it means a lot of suffering. Right? It means running the whole 26.2 miles, not on foot, not in a car, and with approved energy drinks, not with rat poison and brandy. And yet Paul might be getting at something else too, because for the Olympic and Ismian Games of his time, athletes had to go through a very specific 10-month training, which would include diet, exercise, and practice. And if you didn't go through the 10 months, you weren't even allowed to compete. And if somehow you did compete and were found out, you're just disqualified. Right? And so going through those months meant suffering. It meant you had to be devoted and disciplined to the cause of competing. But in either case, Paul's telling us that just as a soldier suffers through devotion and discipline, and an athlete suffers similarly, so too should the Christian. Now, the last example Paul gives of suffering is that of the farmer. 
And to be honest, I don't know much about farming. In fact, I don't know much about growing things, and I've killed about 95% of all the plants I've ever owned. Um, but one thing I do recognize, even as I am unskilled in all of it, is that farming is hard. You uh, get up at the crack of dawn. There is an endless series of chores to be done. There's a bunch of tasks that are season-dependent on things. Your life is dictated by your farm, and a lazy farmer is not going to eat. Right? To grow a crop, you have to be disciplined and devoted to the work. I imagine this is true of a sugar beet farmer, a wheat farmer, or a banana farmer. It doesn't matter what type of farm you are. Um, and yes, everything I do know about farming is from Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> so I don't have an engaging story because I haven't watched Little House in like 20 years. Um, but Paul begins to hint at why we willingly suffer for the gospel and why he willingly suffers for the gospel and finds himself imprisoned and labeled a criminal. Because a life of devotion and discipline, like that of a soldier, athlete, or farmer, brings rewards. You don't suffer just to suffer. A soldier seeks the favor and rewards of his general. An athlete seeks a crown or a medal nowadays. A farmer grows a crop to eat or sell. And for those things, a good soldier, an honest athlete, and a hardworking farmer willingly suffer. But what about the Christian? Right? Why should anyone join Paul in the nonsensical invitation to suffer? Is so costly a life of total devotion and discipline really worth it? What is the reward? Here's Paul's answer in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, Remember Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, descended from David, and this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word isn't chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And so Paul's response is, remember Jesus. Right? Remember Jesus. Now Paul brings up two things about Jesus. Right? Raised from the dead, descended from David. And many commentators on the Bible think that these two things tie to the heresy that Paul mentions later in the chapter. Apparently there are some men who claim that there was already and only a spiritual resurrection there throwing the church into turmoil. And so Paul might be affirming that Jesus not only died, but died as a man. However, I wonder if there's something else also here. Because in thinking about the suffering of the soldier, athlete, or farmer, and the devotion and sacrifice required of them, Jesus' resurrection and his descent from David remind me of God's devotion to us. That God was so devoted to saving us that he actually died as a man. That this wasn't just a whim he suddenly had, but that he planned it long, long ago. That was this devotion of grace found in Jesus even before the beginning of time. And that's a devotion I can't fully comprehend. And it's a faithfulness that dwarfs my own little faith. And yet here are the promises we find. That if we died with him, we'll also live with him. 
As we brought up again and again in this series, God shares all that he has with us and takes all of ours as his own, our sin, our death, our debts. And so he dies in our place so that we might share in his life. And so in the here and now, if we endure, if we suffer with him and are not ashamed, then we have the promise of reigning with him when he returns. And this is the reward. This is what faithful Christians discipline themselves for and devote themselves to. Life with Jesus. That is life with the God who is so devoted to us, who loved us so much that he willingly sent his son to become like us, to die for us, to bind himself to us, and to share his life and kingdom with us. And yet if we don't endure, if we become ashamed of him and reject him, then he too will release us. Because God forces no one into relationship with him. Whether we belong to him is our choice. And yet, if in our struggle to follow, we fail him instead, because we fail him because we are weak or we balk at suffering, because the voice of our culture overwhelms us and shame squeezes us like an anaconda, we find that Jesus will always and ever be faithful to us. Because he can't be anything else faithful is who he is and in binding us to him to deny us is to deny himself second timothy isn't the first time paul uses the imagery of the soldier athlete or farmer you find them throughout his letters to the churches and i think that's also telling right, paul isn't saying that there is a choice between suffering with him and not suffering at all that's not a question of if you will suffer but the way you are going to suffer As Christians, we find that we're already soldiers heading into battle, that we're already athletes to running a race, farmers growing a crop. And all soldiers suffer, both the good and bad. All athletes suffer, both the honest and the cheater. All farmers suffer, the lazy and the diligent. And yet they're going to suffer in different ways. Are we going to suffer? Are we going to be devoted and disciplined like a good soldier and honest athletes and hardworking farmers? We'll be ready for battle and ready to follow our leader. Will we have the endurance to finish the race? Will we harvest a good crop? Or will we find ourselves routed and broken in battle? Will we find ourselves disqualified or getting by off rat poison and brandy? Will our farm yield weeds instead of food because we aren't willing to suffer for it? I think that we often get discouraged because we tend to view a life of devotion and discipline as as this radical life of a missionary overseas, maybe. And earlier this week, I reread a biography of one of my favorite old dead Christians, Gladys Aylward. And she was a simple English housemaid, uneducated, who felt convinced that God called her to go overseas to China. And despite overwhelming odds, she not only got there, but left an incredible impact on the Chinese people of her province. During the Japanese invasion of the Second World War, she rescued hundreds of orphans by leading them on this harrowing journey through mountains to cross the border into Siam. And it's been a a weird week for me. It's been busy, normal busy, but weird encounters with a dying cat and students struggling and trying to figure out what the sermon is. And, And so I read Gladys Elward's biography to just try to escape a little bit. Um... And yet, instead, it just put me further into a weird mood because I found I want to be like her. Like, I want that radical life that she had, where it's so devoted simply, so fantastical, so adventurous. And 
But the very next morning, I was eating breakfast and I left another book on the table because I leave books around the house in case I might want to read them in the moment. And it drives Janelle crazy, I'm sure. Um, but the book was uh, Sky Jatani's What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? And I decided, hey, what the heck? And I started reading. And Famous Sky, as opposed to this Sky, opens by talking about how many people have this stilted view of the radical life with God. And they think that it's going overseas or planting churches or dying a martyr, kind of like Gladys Elward. And yet there's this irony in using the word radical to describe this type of life. Because Sky Jatani says this. He says, we've been told by the culture, both outside and inside the church, that a radical life is determined by visible influence. Our impact must be obvious, measurable, and shareable on social media. This definition, however, is betrayed by the words origin. Radical comes from the Latin radicalis, meaning root. It speaks of the invisible part of the plant that gives it strength and life. The truly radical Christian is not the one whose life appears extraordinary, but the one whose unseen communion with God is extraordinary. I think often we look to the outside when we should be looking in. Even Gladys Elward's life wasn't rooted in the crazy things she did or accomplished. It was rooted in her relationship with God that she grew for years as a housemaid. Suffering as good soldiers isn't found in the winning of the battle, but in the discipline they cultivate beforehand. The suffering of an athlete isn't in the contest, but in the preparation. The suffering of a farmer isn't in the harvest, but the persistent devotion of preparing the ground, planting, and tending. Paul's suffering wasn't waging war against Rome, but in the devotion and discipline of enduring hardships with Jesus and like Jesus. And yes, it meant persecution, years in prison, and the executioner's acts. Today we find the church fighting battles and running races in a variety of arenas. But I suspect that most of them are really us clutching at power and comfort because we don't like to suffer at all. And so instead of suffering like a good soldier of Jesus, we seek our own agendas rather than his and we make enemies of those we are called to love. Instead of competing rightly, we do anything to win as though Jesus only cares about winning and nothing else. That instead of being a hardworking farmer, we seek a lifestyle of ease and comfort and let the harvest worry about itself. And yet the reward isn't power and comfort in this world. The reward is Jesus. Life shared with God, both now and eternally, is the hope, the promise, and the prize. And he has shown himself worthy of all of our devotion and of our discipline and of our suffering. I'll simply end by reading Paul's final reflection on his ministry from 2 Timothy 4. He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And will we do the same? Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of so much more than we can give. And yet so often I find myself lost in the little distractions of life. 
and avoiding following you for things of comfort instead. And yet you promise to always be faithful to us even in the times that we are faithless. That you are devoted to us in ways that we can never reciprocate. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. And help us to follow you more fully. In Jesus' name. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.